0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Dontiel W. Moniz, whose debut story collection, Milk, Blood, Heat, is out now from Grove Atlantic.
1: It's interesting to think about how other people see you. Being a Black woman, I have that on like, multiple platforms and intersections that I can think of as like, how are people looking at me? Like, I can see you projecting onto me, and I'm very interested in like where that projection comes from.
0: Don Teal is the recipient of the Alice Hoffman Prize for Fiction, the Cecilia Joyce Johnson Emerging Writer Award by the Key West Literary Seminars, and a Tin House Scholarship. Her fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in The Paris Review, Tin House, Plowshares, The Yale Review, Joyland, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, and elsewhere. She lives in Northeast Florida. Set in Florida, Milk Blood Heat is as visceral as its title suggests, a collection of thrillingly intimate stories that dive deeper and deeper into the complicated characters within them. In the title story, the intense connection between two young best friends is forever changed by tragedy. In Thicker Than Water, a woman and her brother are at odds about how, or even whether, to grieve the loss of their father. In Outside the Raft, a brush with death reveals dark truths about a young girl's identity and what she will do not just to survive, but to thrive. At the book's heart are women, girls trying to figure out how to be, adults trying to figure out how to be happy, how to move on from tragedy, disaster, or grief. Danteel writes with immediacy and precision. It can be something of a cliche to say that a writer's work is unflinching, but something that astonished me again and again in this collection was Danteel's refusal to look away from moments of acute crisis, conflict, loss, and pain. We talk about that here. We also talk about not protecting your characters, the inextricableness of place and identity, and deciding to take your writing seriously. At WMFA's Patreon page, we talk about endings and death and what makes for a good short story ending. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Well, I, congratulations on the, on the collection. Um, I was, I was really riveted by it in this very physical, visceral way. And, and definitely I want to talk to you about the, that kind of quality of, of the writing and the storytelling, which I think is, is very much there. But, um, where I kind of wanted to start is, you know, the the kind of intersection of place and identity is something that's very, very interesting to me as a writer in my own work. And I think, you know, reading this collection was was super apparent to me here. And um, I think that that these characters have, you know, this really kind of fantastic quality of, I feel like they just like are kind of inextricable from where they are, you know, from this, the sort of Florida-ness is like, is just really deeply, beautifully imbued in here. And so I would love to start by just kind of talking about that and, um, you know, learning a little bit about how that, that came together for you.
1: Yeah. So I think, I'm the type of person that I'm more in my head than I am anywhere else at any given time that Mm -hmm. ordinarily I wouldn't say that, oh, yeah, I'm really good at writing place or setting because I'm thinking a lot of the times I'm thinking of um, internal spaces as setting. Right. But for me, Florida is obviously so unique. I mean, every place is. But right. There's a certain way that Florida is. Is like nowhere else, and it's such a big state it's so diverse. I think that's one of the things people don't realize when they when they're picturing Florida or they're seeing Florida in the news is that geographically and in its people it's just completely diverse right There's just all these different regions that you can almost break up into their own states and so for where I am in North Florida and Jacksonville. You know, it's hot. Obviously, the whole state is, you know, kind of a little bit tropical, but we also get cold. It gets cold here in the winter. And I know cold is a relative term, but like I think 30 degrees is cold for anybody. You know, it's not like really warm, whatever. But um, for me, I was really interested in writing about Florida in a way that didn't add to the stereotypical idea of what Florida and Floridians are. That was really important to me. And in specific, I wanted to write about Jacksonville because it's not very often written about. Like when you think about Florida, it's really easy to be like, oh, Miami, Key West, Disney World. Um, And there's so much more. And I just kind of wanted to honor like the stories that are taking place in the place I grew up.
0: I love that. And and that um really resonates with me, too. You know, I'm from West Virginia, and I do a lot of my writing about Appalachia. Um, And that's always something that I'm thinking about, like, what are people um, kind of what notions are they coming in with? And how much how much do you have to engage with them? You know, how much effort do you have to spend kind of dismantling what what they think they know? And, and part of what I think is so successful here is like, it, that all of that happens very matter of factly. It's like, there's not You skip that part of the process, I think, maybe a little bit and are just like, here's what it just here's here's another thing that you should look at instead or also.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. There's a certain way that I'm not willing to explain really like I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I'm like, here is what it is. I'm putting it on the page. And I think I think about character in that same way, especially because most of the characters in my book are Black girls and women. Right. And I think there's another way where I'm thinking like, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously people are coming into with their own perceived notions of what blackness is, what girlhood is, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested in explaining to you what it is, but I can show you what it is in in these worlds.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And and you said, you know, a moment ago that like, which I totally relate to too, you, but sp- you feel like you spend most of your time just in your head. And so like that, that kind of takes precedence sometimes over writing place. But I think part of what makes these characters feel so firmly rooted in Florida and in the specific, um, you know, kind of micro and macro places that they're in is, is how, how that kind of feeling permeates how, that, how the setting permeates their thoughts and permeates their actions. Yeah. Um, so I would, I'm would i always really curious with story collections, you know, did you, at what point kind of did you know you were writing a collection? Or did you feel like there was a theme? You know, because we all have these ideas that we're writing around consciously or subconsciously, but like do different stories come about at different times? And then over time you were like, oh, I think this is like kind of a constellation of, of of stories and characters.
1: Yes, and I think that's one of the things that's unique to putting together any sort of collection, right, whether we're talking about essays or poetry or stories, it's it's often the case that you don't realize what you're doing until you're like in the middle of it. So the oldest story is Outside the Raft. And I wrote that in 2012 in my undergraduate, not in the way it exists in this book, clearly, you know, like we're talking about undergraduate writing, but the ideas and the seeds for that story, that's when I created that. And then all of the rest of the stories came about somewhere between 2015 and 2019. And so I think I had a handful of stories before i realized it was a collection because at first and i say this over and over but there's just like no other way to say it is that i honestly thought you are writing the same story over and over and just changing the characters names and titles you're so boring and then i realized like oh maybe that's what collections do they take this obsession or this thought or this question right and they turn it in different angles and explore it three dimensionally through worlds that characters can kind of interact with. So yeah, it took a really long time. But then once I realized it, you know, there's a certain way in which a lot of my writing process is unconscious. It's just something that comes natural to me. So when I realized it was a connection or a collection, I went back and I was trying to figure out where are the places where the stories were similar. And there was a lot of these kind of like elemental aspects that were similar in every single story. And then I leaned into it when writing the rest of it.
0: Yeah. And and I would love to, you know, hear more about what you know, for you, those kind of core elements are, I think, something that definitely really fascinated me was this, this, there's, there's this, like, real sense of thresholds, I think, throughout the book, and these, like, these kind of girls, or young women kind of on the verge of a next phase of their lives that they don't totally understand, and kind of trying to look around and Like find their footing. Um, and you know, there are a lot of decisions like kind of made in, in youth. There are a lot of young marriages. There are a lot of young pregnancies. Um, so that was something that really, really stood out to me. The kind of the, the idea of looking at womanhood from like. All of these like past, present, and future
1: sort of perspectives. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm really interested in what you're picking up as far as thresholds because I think another way to say that right is the coming of age, right? Coming of age stories, and and I definitely do see this as a kind of a coming of age narrative, or it's at least in conversation with that. And I don't think of that only in terms of the the girls in the story. I think of it in terms of everybody. Right? There's a way in which we think of coming of age as like one time in your life, like the jump from 12 to 13 or the jump from 17 to 18 or whatever it is. But I think that in some ways we're always coming of age in our lives, right? No matter what age you are, there's always new knowledge to learn about yourself if you're receptive to it. And I I even think of even Fred, right? Who's like the one male protagonist in the book who is in his older age. I think he's still coming of age. He's learning things about himself. And sometimes it's kind of like, what did you learn about yourself? Does it horrify you? Does it, does it pacify you? Or there's another way in which I'm thinking about action and inaction, right? You always hear that about stories like, oh, the, it's the characters um, taking action. But also inaction can become a sort of action when you think of it in terms of choices, right? So it's like, you can never unknow the knowledge that you learn, but you do have the choice to either move into that new knowledge or ignore it and turn away from it. So I think of all of it kind of as coming of age over and over and over.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's funny that, that what you just said uh, really echoes this conversation that I was having with um, some female friends yesterday we were talking about relationships and sort of just like, I don't know, all the messes that we found ourselves in over the course yeah. of our lives. And, um, and I said that, um, you know, my mom. My mom always says and has said to me when I've been in these really difficult situations, you can't unring the bell, and it's this, it's this thing of like, well, you can't. You know, you're here with this information now, so, so, and, and so, narratively speaking, especially like the really interesting part becomes like, what do those characters do with it, and and do they? Yeah. Can they face it, or can they not face it? Right. Exactly. One hundred percent. Fred is super interesting, and I would love to talk about um, how how the book came to have one, one sole male protagonist in it.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, okay. So two, two things that are helpful to know when I, you know, realized it was a collection and I started writing towards that. The first thing is that I started talking to my agent and I was like, can I have a story collection? That's all women. Like the fact that I had to ask that question, I think says a lot about our society and and what we find permissible in stories about women, narratives about women. And so like, that was the first question I had. And she just bluntly was like, yes. And I think I needed <laughs> to hear it that way. Like, yeah, a, a fucking course. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, so for sure, I have that. And then, so the second part of it was when the story of Fred kind of came to me, my biggest concern was, well, I don't want to have this one male narrative in this um, female space, because then obviously that's the one that's always going to be highlighted. It's going to be like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, and I, even mm-hmm. when I was thinking about order, I was like, I kind of don't want it to be in the middle of the book. Cause I don't want it mm-hmm. to be like women, 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 the man, and then women, women, women. But mm-hmm. I really do see that story as yes, it's, um, Fred who is the male protagonist, but really the story is about the women in his life. Right. So yeah. you think about Fred, and who he sees himself as, and who he wants other people to see himself as, right? Because that's more important, not what he thinks about himself, but what others perceive him as. Even that's controlled by his wife and the bartender that he forms this attachment with, right? So like, he thinks it's him, but really, it's all controlled externally by these two women. And I'm still exploring like what their lives are like, their passage through the world. I'm just doing it through the layer of the male gaze, which I think is super duper easy for women to be able to slip into that gaze because we're steeped in it. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's really funny hearing you talk about that. So like the project that I am working on so many of my main characters are men. um, And I've, and I've really struggled with it. And I think that like, you know especially when i think about like the subsequent ideas that i have in the projects that i am excited about working on after this one is finished like i it really does feel like there's some kind of exorcism in that i know that sounds maybe a little too dramatic but you know i uh, think you are right. like we are steeped in that and then there are ways in which it is a way to kind of um Look at yourself without looking at yourself, right? You you can just yeah. like refract yeah. yourself into this person who feels completely different from you. Um, but then, yeah, then I read my pages and I'm just like, God, this is so male. Like, why is it so male? Yeah.
1: And you know, the other interesting thing about that story is, like, obviously, all of this is fiction. Even if I'm using some sort of life event or truth. It's always as a jumping off point. Right. Right. So, but, um, Fred's character came to me through this real life regular. I used to have, um, before I was like taking my writing as seriously as I am now, I was a bartender and a server. That's all I've ever done for work. Um, you know, and like some odd retail, but, um, I had this bar regular who, you know, would come to the bar. Every week it was always on time, and it was always me that he wanted to sit with and You know there were ways in which he fetishized me. There were ways in which I felt beholden to him, even though I didn't owe him anything and i and I started to wonder about who he was outside of the time we spent together at the bar like it really became like a you know I, I don't believe really in people as monsters; I believe people can achieve monstrous acts. I believe that you know, we can forget to look for the humanity in other people. And I think that's more what it's about. But I I just wanted, I just was like, what's going on with this person? And, you know, I'm not going to be like, hey, what's going on with you? Right. Why are you so weird? Why are you creepy? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But like, I could do that in fiction in my own way in a place where I can make peace with it.
0: Right, right. And well, and, and like you're saying too, the women that are in his life, you know, are going through such very different things, you know, like his wife has has made this piece with herself about this cancer diagnosis and and how she's just gonna pick repick up her smoking habit and just kind of let it let it all ride out at this point. And he just can't understand it. And I think in a way, you know, there's something that is more um like that distance from her that we have, that you have as the reader, I think is also, I think there's something really valuable there too. Um, to just kind of watch him watching it.
1: Yeah. Like, I think it was suggested to me actually like, oh, what would happen if this was from the bartender's perspective or if it was from Gloria? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think the distance, I, like you're saying, I think that was what was intriguing for me for this story. And that's the only way I would have wanted to write it.
0: Right, right. It reminds me too, um, I, I had on the show a while back, um, Daniel Evans and the Office of Historical Corrections. There, it's similarly, there's one story Um, that's, that's kind of more male focused. Um, why don't women just say what they want? And it's a very similar idea of like, where are these other women in his life? And like, how are we putting together the pictures of them, you know, through him? And, and like you're saying, I mean, I think like we are steeped in that, like, that's how that, that is it's a legitimate way for a woman to see the world, you yeah. know?
1: maybe not legitimate to us, but it's certainly something that that is normal. It's interesting to think about how other people see you. And I think I mean, like, you know, I'm being a black woman. I have that on like multiple platforms and things of intersections that I can think of as like, how are people looking at me like I can see you projecting onto me and I'm very interested in like where that projection comes from.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I, I went straight to the, the kind of mother-daughter womanhood sort of angle. But but um, yeah, I think that, you know, the way that you deal with race in the book is also super interesting and would love to talk about it. And, and the way that you deal with class as well. Yeah. I think, again, like everything is just so matter-of-factly, which which I don't mean in any way that like to take any, to take away from like the beauty of the prose or the narrative, but like I I really appreciate how it's like I don't know, it's like, you know how sometimes you get stuck on how you want to communicate something in your work and you think like, well, okay, let me go and look at this this writer that I love and like look at how they did it. And like you open a book and you're like, oh, they just did it. Like it just seems like it's just like there. And that's how I felt about this. Um, but, but I would love to talk about that because, you know, I, the, one of the last conversations that I had on the show, um, was with, um, Matthew Salasis and we talked about, um, craft in the real world and talked about the, the kind of default of, you know, well, these characters are white until we tell you they're not white. Um, and, and so, so how, how were you grappling with that through the course of writing?
1: Yeah. So number one, I will say that you know, I have been a reader and a writer for a very long time, like since I was a child. And I know that sounds like precocious to be like, I've always been a writer, but like, (laughs) but I have been like, that's just the way my brain works. That's how I understand what I'm thinking or feeling. But um, I used to, and I didn't have, I couldn't articulate this in any way, any, in any way um, back then, but like I would read books and it, It always bothered me that, like, it would be like the girl walked into a room and that was just, you know, what it is. But then it would be like the black girl walked into a room. And it -hmm. it always irked me. And I couldn't, you know, explain it. But I was like, why? Like, why is that her defining characteristic? And why is it that when it's a white character, it's just the girl, you're allowed to exist. I think about like, um, I don't know if it was an experiment or whatever it was, but it was like having people look in a mirror and saying what they saw. And it was like, you know, a white man could look in the mirror and just say, I see a man. Right. But if it was a black man or any other kind of thing, you had to have that qualifier on it. And so I think for me, that was always something that I picked up on from a very young age. And so in my writing, I always kind of like, well, I'm like, okay, well let's change the defaults here. You know what I mean? I want Mm -hmm. to be able to just be, these are human people and yes, they are black. And you can tell that by obviously the ways in which the world is reacting to them, the way that other characters are reacting to them, the way that they have thoughts and how they have to think about the world. Right. Um, So that's, so that's one way. And then I think when I'm writing white characters, I want it to be apparent, like, you know how there's this distance between the narrator in the story and the author in the story and the, and the characters and all that stuff. So I, even when I'm writing white characters, I want it to be apparent, even if the white character in the story isn't aware of their whiteness or doesn't have to be aware of it right, I want the reader to know that me, the author, I'm aware of it. And I'm aware of how those privileges and things are, are interacting. So I think that that's an important distinguishing thing that I do when I'm dealing with race in any of my stories, too.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I think about that a little bit. That makes me think of um the story Necessary Bodies where Billy's partner is Liam. Is that his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and there's, I forget now what exactly it is, but just some, yeah, very passing.
1: Um, yeah. It's like, he says like, Oh, um, Indian givers. I think he uses that term. Yes. It's like, yeah, Hey, yeah. they deserve better than you don't use that term white man. And I, and you know, I think that's something real. I think I had feedback, Or somebody was making a suggestion where they were like, oh, you know, I would maybe take that out. They're like in a romantic relationship with each other. I feel like they wouldn't be talking about race in those ways. And I'm like, well, I am someone who is married to a white man. And, Mm -hmm. you know, over the decade of our relationship, you know, he's definitely have has way more awareness of how I move through the world versus how he moves through the world than he did when we first got together. Do you know what I mean? It's very easy to if you haven't been made like if you have been your whole life been made to feel as the default and you don't have to think about your race and you don't have to think about your gender. Um, It's very easy to not think about other people's. And that's why people are always like, are you sure it's a race thing? Are you sure it's a gender thing is because they haven't had to really deal with it on a day to day basis, like people who are marginalized do. And so I thought I was like, No, that's a really real thing to say I mean, you're always learning. And I think there's still moments where me and my husband were, you know, I'm like, actually, I want you to think about it this way, because this is systemic, you know what I mean? This is a system problem. It's not like it's individual in your eyes, but it's really um, a systems problem.
0: Right, right. I also think it's kind of unfair to intimate relationships that you wouldn't, to suggest you wouldn't have conversations like that.
1: Yeah, it's really weird. It's like, if you're in a relationship and y'all never talk about it. I was like, "There's probably something underneath there that you need to right. actually explore."
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's yeah. <laughs> I'm like, obviously, I'm a white lady, and my partner is a white guy. But like, just you know, systemic like misogyny. We have those conversations yeah. all the time. Where I'm like, "Here's why I get upset when I feel like yeah, I have to." Exactly. Ask exactly. Something.
1: It's like, no, I'm not flying off the handle. I'm pissed because this is like stacked against me. This is what I'm trying to tell you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at wmfapodcast.com slash merch. That's wmfapodcast.com slash m-e-r-c-h. I want to go back to this idea of um, coming of age because, you know, so many of these stories like really have stuck with me and I'm sure will continue to stick with me. But I think one of the most powerful to me was um the hearts of our enemies I don't know I think I think in Necessary Bodies I think Billy says something about um her little sister like was I ever this age where I was so wise and so ignorant at the same time Mm -hmm. and I think that Margot like really exemplifies that for me in a way that I found super super compelling and and interesting and like there was this line that I loved um in all of this, Margot was mostly mad that her mother had wanted something and didn't take it, and the consequences were the same. Like she yeah. understands so much, um, and I, I guess I just want to talk about, you know, you're, when you're writing specifically in these younger these younger characters, you know, everything is so concentrated. Like their feelings are so concentrated. Your under your questions are so concentrated, and I I want to just maybe talk a little bit about how you. Um, kind of navigated that maybe versus writing you know some of the like for instance like writing Frankie like writing writing the older characters who still have a lot to learn and a lot of coming of age to do but in in different phases
1: yeah so so I'll start with saying that my feeling and I've had this feeling for a very long time is that I think adults forget that kids or younger people are humans you know what I mean there's a Mm -hmm. way in which it's like you're a child. You have no concerns and no worries, which is like super far from the case. I mean, you're you're new to the world. You're new to life and what's expected of you. You have so many questions. You have very little power. And the, and oftentimes the people who are set to protect you aren't sometimes doing it in a way that's actually protecting you or they're doing mm-hmm. it in a way where, you know, they want you to behave certain ways, but they won't explain to you why. And I feel like that that goes doubly for, for girls. You know what I mean? There's all these expectations, but you're just told, like, you have to be this way, but no one tells you why. And so I think for me, too, and, and, and I'm not saying this is the case with every child, but, like, I know for myself, from a very young age, I was already asking questions like, you know, why was I born a tiger instead of a human? Like, what happens to us when we die? And I had these really searching questions that maybe adults thought were age-inappropriate. Um, not my father. My father was like one of those people where he would take me to like rated R movies and we would like talk about things very directly. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just felt like adults weren't giving me credit for having like complexity and nuance and that kind of thing. So I kind of, when I read a younger person, I am still approaching it like you are a full human you just don't have like the capabilities maybe to understand everything that's going on around you but that doesn't mean you don't understand things children are mm. so observant right that's the main way in which children learn how to be a person in the world is by modeling and observing so even if you don't think a child is watching and uh, you know taking in what's happening they might not be understanding it fully but they they can they can see it right and they know like to pick up social cues and that kind of thing so it's just honoring that and like not trivializing like childhood i think
0: right Right. And I think like there's such a skill there too of really you you know, you the writer, you the author, then have to really distill these emotions and these experiences into these sort of maybe simpler terms than an adult would use, but that that hints at knowing how much more vast they actually are. Yeah, exactly. I I did have such a I felt this reading experience so physically in my body. Yeah. Um, And so I would love to talk about that and like just the, the kind of, you know, the, the embodiment in the sense. And, and obviously every time we're talking about, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, death and sexuality and uh, motherhood, you know, it it is going to be, there is going to be a lot of, um, of embodiment, but also just, it's just so visceral, you know, I think in, even from the beginning, you know, that, that amazing opening of the girls, um, Coloring the milk pink with their blood and then drinking it together to have this kind of like you know packed. Um, was that something that you felt was maybe like a goal of the of the voice of the collection, or is this just sort of like when you write, that's what comes
1: out? Like how how does how do you feel about that? It's in, it's hundred percent intentional. So it makes me feel really good that like you're saying that. Oh, I felt this in my body. I'm like, great, okay, so that's what I was trying to do, and so that's cool. I'm glad that's working out. Um, yeah, I think. There's all kinds of intelligences, right? I think like having this one model of this is intelligence and everything else falls outside of that is really a disservice to people because there's so many different ways to understand yourself and the world around you and the people around you. And so one of those ways for me, I think I understand my world. Through my body, do you know what I mean? Like everything is kind mm-hmm. of tactile, and then like my emotions. I think I have a lot of emotional intelligence, and I can like recognize it in other people, and I can, and, and I'm always kind of analyzing what it is in me. And I think one of the things that I think is very easy to do, like when times are hard, like if you think of all of last year but just in general, like if you've had any trauma in your life is, but like to disconnect from your body, right? Mm -hmm. We think of our, it's so easy to think of your body as just like there and not requiring anything of you, but it does need, it needs so much from you to run properly um, and to like function and help you like be in the world at your best capacity. And I think that we can, we have a tendency maybe, and maybe not everybody, but people tend to think of their emotions as maybe only happening in your mind, only in the brain, but like, you can feel your emotions in your body, right? Like if you're angry, you can feel that you can feel where joy happens. You can feel where anxiety happens. And so for me, that was like, that was what I wanted to do. I was like, you know, if I can somehow transfer the emotions that these characters are feeling from a two-dimensional plane into somebody else's body, that'll be a success for me. And even if it's something that you necessarily don't want to feel, because that's the other part, right, is Mm -hmm. sitting with things that are uncomfortable. I think our society stigmatizes certain superhuman-like experiences and emotions because it's like, inappropriate or it's uncomfortable or no, you don't talk about that. And I think that's the reason why it's such a big deal and why we have this disconnect in the first place. So basically what I'm asking readers to do is sit with it, sit with it, see where it feels, where it comes through to you in your own body and then kind of like reflect about your own life. That's what I'm trying to do more than anything with these stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think that um, you know, just as a person for me, that really resonates with somebody who is like, who would much prefer to be in my head, even if that head is generating crippling anxiety, yeah. then, like feel the feeling that the wow. anxiety is like distracting me from. Um, and I think there are so many great examples of that throughout the book where, um, you know, the, these, it's almost like. I don't want to say like possessed that feels a little over the top and not quite what I mean, but like this, like very instinctual, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like this very, like there are, you know, even, even in in the opening story of Milk, Blood, Heat, you know, the, um, Kira jumping off the roof. It's just like, and there was a second and then it happened. And like, I actually had to reread the passage, the kind of like culmination point of that story a few times to be like, wait, what is, what is happening? But like, you know, she's kind of, she's deciding to kind of try to save herself instead and like it doesn't
1: yeah. it doesn't
0: end up needing to be
1: that choice but she was prepared to make that choice yeah and, and it's ex- exactly I think instincts and like just the split second in which these decisions that can alter your life happen right
0: yeah absolutely um
1: you know from from my own experience
0: you're sitting down and trying to write and you're trying to put. You know, you're trying to show, not tell, right? And you're just like, okay, well, what, how many things can a body do, right? He can sigh, he can cough, he can, you know, it's like it all feels so rote, but these are really specific. Uh, surprising details, I think, of physicality. And, and like, the one that I love that I'm thinking of um, is in the story Thicker Than Water. Um, I'm not
1: sure. Do we get the narrator's name? Yeah, so her, you get it one time in the very beginning. Um, it's Cecilia, oh. yeah. Her mom says, okay, enough. You know what I mean? And we right. don't really get it after that.
0: Right, okay. But, like, her... So Cecilia's sort of... Um, repulsion but obsession with like her bodily smell yeah and like meeting meeting her brother's girlfriend who's just this like completely you know she she has like no qualms about her body and and how it serves her and like what it is and it's like truest form and like I think that's just such a wonderful example of like all the ways that we can just feel like aliens yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think And that—that's. I'm glad you say that because I think that's another thing. Like, I know, like, some of the stuff that I've heard about the book is, like, it's too dark. I can't deal with it. It's too dark. And I'm like, well... Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to shy away from what is dark in the human experience. I think it's necessary to accept that that's the way that it is sometimes. It comes with the joy. Like if you're thinking about good, bad, right, wrong, those things are judgments. They're subjective. They can't exist. Like what do they mean without the the other thing? And so I think what mostly too what I wanted was for people to be like, oh, this is okay. These thoughts I'm having, these feelings that I'm having, it's okay. It's normal. It's human. Do you know what I mean? Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that
0: was, that was definitely like something that I, I had in my notes that I wanted to talk to you about. Like, there is this like refusal to look away um, that I think is, is really, um, is really brave. Like, I think it's really, you know, like, I know that's part of what we're doing as writers, hopefully all the time, but like, that doesn't mean we, I mean, speaking for myself, I try to get out of it all the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, actually, I have a. Um, I'm teaching right now at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and one of my students was basically like, you know, they had a really hard time with letting bad things happen to their characters, uh-huh. or you know, letting their characters do bad things. And I think, you know, if you're trying to tell a story as completely as you possibly can, you you can't you can't sit in judgment of your characters, but you also can't protect them. You know what I mean? You kind of have to let what's going to happen what feels like organically is like what they're moving to you have to let it happen
0: right right were were there any movies or characters in particular for you where that was maybe a little bit harder to to put into practice than others
1: no i don't think so like, yeah so the way a story usually comes to me is i know where where it ends Okay. And, and a lot of the times, I also know where I want to start. So a lot of it looks like me exploring through the middle to connect the two. But, um, yeah, I kind of I'm like, okay, well, how how can I most realistically get them to this ending?
0: Right, right. So when you say you know, um, you get you get at first the beginning and ending. Is it sort of? Is it more of an imagistic thing or like a, a character?
1: I think characters are usually secondary. Like Mm -hmm. usually I'm a very visual thinker. So Mm -hmm. I think an image will come to me first, but I'm also like really into (laughs) ideas and concepts. So like if, if, if a question comes up for me and something that I, let's say I'm watching a movie or whatever, or, and then a character does something, I'm like, Oh, what is this moment? Like, what does this mean? Oh my God, humans do do this. And then I have a question around it. So it could be a question. It could be an image. Um, but yeah, I usually think in images. And then I'm like, I feel like all day I'm either translating images into words or vice versa, like all the time. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. And I, and, you know, and so, I mean, so much of what's so powerful about the short story as a forum or at least like the short stories that I really tend to respond most to as a reader is like, is it really is just this moment. And it's like, okay, well, how do you, yes. how do you really drill down into like, um, you know, what is the thing, like the moment after which like nothing will ever be the same or or whatever the definition is. Yeah.
1: I used to use that exact phrasing right the moment after which nothing could be the same. That's what you're leading up to. That's what I would tell my students. And I think I love the short form so much is because for the same reason, a lot of people hate the short form, right? Where they're like, I feel like I was just getting into this character's Mm -hmm. world and getting attached to him. And now it's over. But I feel like, a good short story writer will, they will will leave you enough in the text to understand where this, this character's life goes off the page, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm always kind of trying to do. I'm trying to, this question came up recently and I, and I had to put it like, I see endings as more windows into the next thing rather than as pure exits. You know what I mean? Like if I've done my job correctly, you can understand what the next choice for that character would be. Like I'm thinking about thicker than water, Mm -hmm. right? The way Mm -hmm. that that story ends, you kind of know like Cecilia isn't going to be able to deal with the realities of what her relationship was with her father. And you kind of understand that her relationship, whatever she was trying to get back with her brother, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I love that you said that, that. That's exactly the ending that I was thinking of too. And and I think, you know, like, I think sometimes I feel like there there is sometimes, like, this trend in in kind of contemporary short stories to, like, end with something that's, like, I don't know, like, re- a real curve or, like, really opaque or, like, this very, yeah. you know, and, mm-hmm. and not, and I don't mean that, that to say that, like, you know, there's not, like, Artfulness in that, and that's not sometimes appropriate. Yeah, but sometimes exactly. it feels just like sort of deliberately like um, obtuse.
1: It feels like a drop off yes. rather than like, like you said, like you can continue it on. And I think, I think people are like traumatized about by like short stories that do that, and that, and in a way that they kind of project that onto every short story they read. Because I had heard that too from a couple of people, like this is abrupt; these are all ending abruptly. And I'm like, no, they're not. You just have to do a little bit more work. Right. Right. Um, that you might have to do like in a novel or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Right. Right. Absolutely.
0: Um, Are you interested in, in longer form writing as as well? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yes and it is like oh my god it's so sprawling like i so actually the first book that I was ever writing was this novel that I am still currently trying to write and when I went into my MFA I just had no desire whatsoever to sub- subject it to the workshop so I was doing the novel and then I was also doing these stories so that I could workshop them um, and I was doing the novel as my thesis, but it's just, I think it's, it's probably just me and the way that I write. This is probably why I gravitate to the short form is that I'm a sentence by sentence writer. Mm-hmm. For me, I start building a story at the line of the sentence. And so that's, that's all well and good, good in a short story, right? You could do that. You can hold the whole story in your mind in a way that you can't with the novel. And also it becomes problematic in revisions because the way that I like to revise is, my drafts end up a little cleaner because I'm usually revising as I write. That's just the way that I re myself into the story. And also I'm like bothered by sentences where the rhythm is off or the sound is off. So I like have to fix it. But again, at a certain point in a novel, you cannot do that. I think it's just the difficulty of holding an entire sprawling, you know, novel in your head at one time. That's difficult. But yeah, yeah I mean, like if I can pull it off, I'm trying. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind
0: of just your writing life more, more generally, you know, you mentioned before, um, having worked uh, food service jobs, you know, before you started taking um, your writing seriously is like, what was kind of the, the timeline for you there?
1: Yeah, so, so, okay, so we have to come back to this novel, because that's what I was writing. Um, I've written it originally when I was 12. And I keep everything that I've ever written. I have a drawer that's just full of like comics and like little dramas that I used to put me and my friends in where we were married to our high school crushes and like, you know, all this stuff. Love it. I love it too, but it's also so cringy to look at. (laughs) Oh my God. Like the misogyny, you know? And then it's also poorly written. So, but like that aside, um, the ideas though in the novel were not bad. And so like in 2010, when I found it, I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to write this. And I just kept starting stopping. Like I would get to 10,000 words and stop. And then I put it away for like a year. And then I'd get to like 20,000, 30,000. And then finally, this is around 2015 where I was like, I think I need help. I think I need support because I was working these, you know, 12 hour doubles most of the time. And I was just exhausted. And you know, I just needed time and I needed financial support. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like no one prepares you for like you you need money. You have to be, like, independently wealthy to, like – because the other thing about it, right, is, like, nobody cares that you're writing a book. No. Until they <laughs> care, right? Nobody yeah. cares until they care. So, um, you know, it's, like, finding a community was really important for me. But, yeah, so I had always been a writer. But, like, even even – I went to an arts high school for writing. But even then, nobody was preparing me to have published a book, right? It was right. just, like, you did this. You graduated. Good for you. And that was it. So – I feel like I didn't answer your question. I feel
0: like no, I'm you are answering, answering it. it. Yeah. No. So you so you decided you need support and you started applying yeah, for yeah. MFAs.
1: Yeah. And so I I had no like I didn't really other than Iowa, I had I didn't know about MFAs. I didn't even know they could be fully funded. And so I went mm-hmm. on poets and writers. And basically the, I applied to 10 schools because that was all I could afford to apply to because even that took me a couple of years to pay off on my credit card. It's so expensive. Mm-hmm. But um I picked 10 schools and I was like, they have to be fully funded. Only two years because my husband wasn't going to be able to come with me. So we were like long distance for those two years. That was okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of the sacrifice of doing that. And then um, I just happened to get into Madison, Wisconsin, and it was like the most supportive community. Like for me, being in the publishing industry is such a steep learning curve because I had no idea what the steps were from wanting to write a book to actually having a book published. And I think it's a really opaque industry, but like, I got really lucky that I had so much support at my MFA and, you know, and then I kind of just went from there.
0: So now that, now that your first book is coming out into the world, what do you feel like your kind of professional life looks like now you're teaching right now?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently the Mendota lecturer in fiction at my MFA, which is really cool, actually. It's like this, it's just feel, I feel really grateful to be able to re- to return some of the care that I was given into, like, my students. And I, I never thought I would be the person who would like teaching. Like, I used to be in high school and look at teachers and be like, how how did you spend all of that time in school and come back to school? Like, I'm never doing that. That's so lame. But, like, it's, t- it's super different to teach fiction because i love talking about craft and i and i love Mm -hmm. it's just so interesting to me so that's basically like i'm getting to do what i love to do and with students who are super engaged and also love to do it so um i didn't know if i would be good at teaching because i had never done it before i got to my mfa but now i'm good at it and also i liked it so so that's really cool um also, no one can prepare you for your book being published, right? Like, it's like, oh, here are all the steps, but, like, you don't know. Like, it's right. so – the landscape moves so quickly. You never know, like, what books are going to get any kind of attention at all or what. And so I've been very fortunate that, like – you know what I mean? I feel like people are reading the book. So that's all you can really ask for.
0: Right. Yeah, and and did you have um, a kind of really arduous process with, like, finding your agent and, and finding an editor and that
1: sort of stuff. So this part, it makes me feel sometimes a little bad to be like, I really didn't. It's because, you know, again, it goes back to my MFA and like, Don't feel
0: like, bad. That's wonderful.
1: I, I know. So I, I balance it being like, I mean, it is what it is. This is how it happened. But like, yeah. also I'm like, know it doesn't, I'm aware that it's not the case for everybody. Um, but, you know, so my MFA brought in agents to meet students and it's just a way to be like, hey, this is what this would look like. We want to give you some practice doing this. And my agent ended up being the first agent I met. And, uh, you know, people give you the general advice of, you know, don't sign with the first agent, which I think, again, is great general advice. However, Mm -hmm. um, when I was talking with her, I just had this little gut feeling that was like every time she said something, I was just like, yeah, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. You know what I mean? And it was the same voice that had led me to picking University of Wisconsin-Madison over Iowa, which people were like, why would you not go to Iowa? And I'm like, well, I just have a gut feeling that I should go to the other place. And so Mm -hmm. I've been following that voice along. But yeah, it was, for me, I feel like I didn't have to do a lot of the stuff that people have to do as far as like querying and all that stuff. And I'm super grateful and an acknowledgement of that. But that's just how my experience was.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love what you're saying about the gut feeling. And it makes me wonder if that, um, if that voice or that, that that feeling appears um, when you're writing as well.
1: Sometimes when I'm not like overshadowing it with my own anxiety, like, you know what I mean? Like, I think so much of my writing process is me realizing that what I'm being anxious about is really an external factor that I haven't somehow internalized. And so I think that voice is always there. I think it's very strong in me because again, when I like follow it, I haven't been led wrong yet. But yeah, I think there is a point where I kind of get all the other voices so to speak out of my head and I can just drop down into the work and how I know I've dropped down into the work is like I look up and then five hours have gone by and I've actually written something which you know being in that flow state takes some time to get there just because it's such a battle I mostly have to overcome my own mind really I don't know I think that's really common with writers so
0: yeah, I felt I felt very personally attacked by what you said about external <laughs> external
1: factors and yeah. not internal. Like,
0: yeah, well, God, OK, just come for me. Fine. I
1: mean, yeah, but it's good. To, <laughs> it's good to recognize that. That's what I'm Absolutely. trying. That's what the most thing I want to do with my students is kind of like get them to recognize when it's happening. And they're like, oh, this is something that I'm ex- Anxious about, and I'm like, is it from you or is it from some sort of external pressure or some imaginary audience that you're thinking about? Like, right. really distinguish between the two.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, what you're saying about um, even a way, even about the way you know that you draft the like sentence by sentence and kind of wanting to get each sentence perfect. Um, I think that, like, for me, I am working on a novel project and I've had to really. Um, like loosen my grip on that instinct because you yeah. just can't do it. And, but it's so hard to be like, no, 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 yeah. no. But I just, I know a beat needs to go there. And if I just sit here long enough, I'll figure out what it is. And it's like, okay, well, no, you need to like, you need to, you know, build the frame of the house before you can.
1: Yeah. See, now I feel attacked. Yeah. You know <laughs> <what I mean? laughs> <laughs> yes, I know what you're saying makes sense, and I know it. it's just hard to do, but yeah, I think, I know. yeah, I think you have to allow, and, I, and it's so crazy because I'll say this to my students all the time where I'm like, Allow yourself to be messy in your first drafts, allow yourself right. to play. But when it comes to my own work, I'm like, No, nah! you know, like it's this whole thing. So,
0: I have this. Um image on my screensaver or whatever that's kind of like my background that's it the background um that's like from this um I think her Instagram handle is inspired to write she's just like this really lovely like positive creative like doula sort of person um she does these like you know she just kind of writes these messages on paper and then takes a picture of herself with the paper and that's the that's the message of the day and I have one up that's like none of your new year's resolutions will mean shit unless you get okay with making shitty art (laughs) I'm just like uh... Uh, Yeah. Painful
1: and necessary.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to start to wrap us up um, by asking a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, um, which maybe will be a good transition from what we've just been talking about, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like
1: for you? Hmm. Honestly, and I have to go because the thing, like I said, that comes most naturally to me in the story is the ending. When I have done every single thing to deserve that ending, that's like mm. chef's kiss, where I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's resonating. I that love that. I awesome. Well, thank you
0: so much for taking the time today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you about this, and congratulations again. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347 685 4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.